Hello and welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. I'm James Pringle. Today we're delighted to welcome Andrew Scott, founding partner at 7% Ventures. 7% Ventures invest in early stage technology across the UK, Europe and the US. They invest in transformative technology, solving painful problems in a big market. They've had notable exits, including Oculus VR, which was sold to Facebook, and Magic Pony Technology, which was also a first check investment, which was sold to Twitter. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much for coming on. Great to be here. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So, Andrew, please can you start by explaining how your career started and then how you ended up becoming a VC? Sure. So I guess I had a, what you might call cliche entrepreneurial start. I got kicked out of college and at the time was doing desktop publishing work and IT work. So setting up LANs, WANs and software for small businesses. The internet came along and it seemed to me a great combination of of those things. So I flipped in at school actually to doing um, work with uh, technology and then did my first startup in uh, 97, 98. And since then, uh, did six in total, sold one, four failed, one still running without me, did a bit of consulting in between, spent a couple of years in the valley. And then in 2013, when I came back to Europe, I really had to decide what do I do next? I was consulting for a VC in Sweden called Charms Innovation and helping them on their strategy and with some of their portfolio companies. Do I do another startup or do I switch onto the investment side and solve? some of the challenges and frustrations in Europe and the UK that I'd experienced as a founder. And ultimately, that's what I decided to do. So partnered with a friend, now business partner, Andrew Galt, and yeah, the other rest, as they say, is history. So what would you say is the number one thing you look for in a potential investee company? Because we invest early stage, the one thing I've learned over now, just over five years of investing, is that when I first started investing, you get drunk on the product idea. And what I mean by that is that um, someone comes along with an amazing product, but perhaps if they're not the best founder in the world, you end up projecting your own ideas and your own vision for the product onto that founder and that startup team. So I used to think that early stage startup investing was, let's say, 60% founder, 30% product and strategy, 10% market, you know, whatever whatever percentages you want to pick out. Our five years of investing, I think I've realized it's 98% founder at that early stage. And it's a big cliche, but the right founder with the right temperament and the right level level of ambition will find a way to build a very successful company that transforms the world in a, in a, in a good way. And so the, the simple answer is ambition. And for us, it's then looking for a demonstration of that ambition. So even at an early stage, if the company's only been running, let's say, three months and it's just two, two people, you know, we're looking for how is that sense of urgency been demonstrated in the last three months, even to the point where they're talking to us perhaps about giving them a first check. You know, what, what is the evidence? that we can see from those, those early week months that there's a real sense of urgency and that that ambition level is not just you know, regurgitating the blog posts that everyone reads on TechCrunch, but is actually intrinsic to that person. And how, how much of that is the, the founder's personal traits and how much of it is also their understanding of the market that they're operating in? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, it is hugely to do with, with temperament because someone's, you, you see two types of founder. One is the people that enjoy running a business and then there are people that enjoy growing a business. And those are two different types of people. And we spend our time trying to work out, you know, what is driving an individual. I always remember one of our portfolio founders meeting Charlie Songhurst, who's a, who's a highly prolific and successful angel. They came out of the meeting and uh, when, we, when, we, when we asked, you know, how did it go? She was super surprised that he spent three quarters of the meeting asking about her background and what she'd done and her career 
career, you know, in a way that many other investors had. I think that that's really smart because what you're finding out is what's making that person tick. You know, how do they operate as an individual? What's driving them? Why do they get up in the morning? You know, what's going to make them, you know, wade through the swamp that is running a running a startup? It, it's absolutely all about people, which is challenging, right? Because of course, people are the hardest people, the hardest thing to put any uh, quantitative measure against. Whereas it's much easier to look at the product and look at the, the potential size of the market. You know, all these other things that that we can put graphs against. And but actually, you know, it's it's a constant fight for myself to remind myself that it's the person I'm backing and it's not, you know, the product or the, the future potential for the product. Absolutely. And you've had a, a number of big successes. I think it'd be really interesting to understand what the process is like when coming to sell a business. So when Twitter acquires someone like Magic Pony or Oculus is acquired by Facebook, how does that conversation start? And what is maybe the most surprising thing in the process that isn't obvious to people outside of the, the deal room? Sure. That's, a, that's another great question. A lot of the conversations can come about from the most obvious ones are our potential customers can quite often be trade acquirers. And I think that's something that sometimes founders forget that M&A can happen you know, overnight because uh, either through a defensive acquisition, such as you know, Facebook may with Instagram or, or, or WhatsApp, but more normally it's because there's an existing relationship there um, of some form. And certainly with Magic Pony, when we first met them, they were talking to you know, mobile network operators and sort of other people about using their technology. And we said, look, forget using these guys. You know, I'm someone that comes from, from the, the old school mobile industry. You know, forget talking to these guys because they're going to move incredibly slowly. They're going to talk to you for a year. They're not going to want to write a check. And then, you know, somebody will change at a senior level. And then, you know, the whole conversation will go, go quiet about, about, you know, this was just about being a customer. He said, you know, go and talk to the companies that have a more dynamic approach to adopting technology, like, you know, the Netflixes, the Twitters and those sort of things. And, you know, that acquisition ultimately came out of one of those, those customer development conversations. As far as the, you know, what's the most surprising thing? I think it's important founders should remember that every conversation is ultimately a negotiation especially if you are you know you're seeking to be acquired you know the conversations can be friendly but it is still a deal being made and if if it's a larger company where you're dealing with a specific M&A person that does this for a living this is this is what they do and think about every day all day and for most founders it's the first time they're going through this process so they'll use all the tr- tricks in the book through that process to either find out information or to ask for information sooner or for you to re- reveal your hand or for you to put a an anchor in the ground on your expectations of exit value. And that's a steep learning curve for any founder. We would definitely recommend that founders engage that don't have any experience doing this. And if, if they're not feeling confident to, to engage a third party to help them in that process, that should be a, a, a very commercially minded lawyer, which probably translates to a, a lawyer that someone that's worked in a, in a US law firm at some point, because I've generally found them to be a little bit more commercially minded. But the best case scenario, that that's some form of M&A person or a boutique M&A house who specializes in doing this sort of thing, because they'll just bring a huge amount of value. They'll stop you from sending you know, your financials over too early. They'll stop you from anchoring the conversation at the wrong point. They'll help you position the business for that customer and also potentially reach acquirers you haven't thought of. Because you've got to remember that beauty is in the eye of the beholder for, for a lot of these acquisitions. You know, if there's a strategic reason why that business wants to buy you, possibly that you don't even know about. I mean, in the case of Twitter and Magic Pony, you know, they really didn't have a sufficiently robust AI team at all. Even stuff like you know, their, their search was still a mess. That was very much an acquisition hire as much as it was a technology um, acquisition. But finding that match where one plus one equals five outcome 
for the acquirer is absolutely critical. And someone who does this, you know, e either a good investor who's been through this or a good M&A person will help you structure a deal um, and propose deal terms, which you might not have thought of. You know, one example might be that, especially for companies at earlier stage that don't have the EBITDA or the obvious justification for the valuation of the business might be, well, hey, we, we, you know, we're bringing all this, te this technology platform and our team into your business. That means you're going to be able to raise, you know, a much bigger Series B or Series C than you would have been able to. So we're happy to join. But then if you're successful in doing that raise, we get a larger equity share of the business or we get a bonus or we get, you know, an extra payout. There are all sorts of ways of slicing a deal. That's not that's not one single most surprising thing, but underestimate the complexity. I've got, I've got a great anecdote, actually, if you, if you want one. That would be great. Okay, so we're early stage and we're only four or five years, you know, I'm only four or five years into sort of investing. So a lot of the M&A, there has been a bit, but a lot of M&A experience from an investor's point of view is probably still still to come for me. But obviously did 20 years as a founder, came close to selling, you know, three or four negotiations to sell a business, only sold one. I should have sold two of my businesses, but didn't. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. But I remember selling to one US company that there were, there were three founders. I, I was in Cambridge at the time running my business. And when we came to sort of finally have to make a decision about whether we were going to accept their offer or not, we were asking for their uh, financials. They'd seen all our financials. They'd seen all our, our balance sheet. And we're like, well, we, you know, we want to do the DD on the, on the acquiring company. And they said, yeah, 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 we'll send it over. We'll send it, we'll send it over. It'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll get the CFO to send it over. And I waited and nothing came through. And then I got a phone call from one of the girlfriends going, hey, so you guys decided if you're, if you're going to do the deal or not? I'm like, well, I'm still waiting for the, uh, the balance sheet stuff. Um, like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, have you not got that? Okay. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get the financials over to you. That's no no problem at all. So the, yeah, we'll get get the CFO sent. So I wait another day or two, and I get another email. You know, hey, have you guys decided? I'm like, still waiting for your financials. Like this this went on for literally it went on for about ten days, two weeks, and they just kept not sending, not sending. You know, all sorts of people. Oh, he's uh, yeah, sorry, he's been away. You know, the CFO's been away, and they, they just didn't want to reveal the financials. And it turned out that that business was burning four hundred thousand dollars a month. They you know were going to run out of money within you know, two months. They were going to have to raise more money three months and you know that would obviously have a direct impact on the shareholding that I would have in that new business now we didn't do the deal in the end with hindsight I should say I should have done the deal because you know the outcome for my business ultimately it didn't work out we went for a moonshot we missed but also I didn't fully understand the way the valley worked at that time this was you know 2006 or 2005 and you know I was being advised by advisors in the UK my advisors that oh my god you know they're going to get bankrupt they're burning $400,000 a month how are they going to raise in, in three months Whereas, you know, that's not unusual in the Valley. You know, you run towards a wall and the business is on a certain growth trajectory and you all raise that money. So that was just a, a lack of understanding on my part and how the, how the Valley works. And had I joined that business, I would have joined a business in the center of Silicon Valley, backed by tier one VC, et cetera, et cetera. That comes down to the advisors you have and well-meaning advisors can, can sometimes give you the wrong advice. Yeah. Typically, do you see companies acquired for cash or cash and equity or equity only uh huge variance i mean i think you know the earlier stage you are the more likely it's going to be equity only it's going to be shares only the earlier stage the acquiring company is the less likely you're obviously to get cash because they may not have the cash in the bank they can afford to spare so it really it really depends on the acquirer that said it can be a better deal sometimes to take the equity for the founders you know my my business partner andrew galt you know had a com company acquired took stock and that stock went up so, you know, and end up being two or three times the worth of the, that the cash would have been. So it can end up being a good deal. Do you believe in the, uh, the, the acquiring company, I guess, is the answer, you know, and if you're joining some big corporate, unless you know something that the rest of the stock market don't, probably take the cash and run.
<laughs> yeah, good advice. So VC is a large and growing asset class. There are more VCs now than ever before. What would you say is missing in the current VC market today? Yeah, so I think it depends where you are. I think we need more later stage growth capital in Europe and the UK. If we want to, there's all this, always this cliche, cliche question of, you know, why don't we have a Google in Europe or the UK? And part of the answer to that is that there just simply is not the, the capital available with sufficient risk appetite to back some of these businesses to the degree they need to be backed in order for them to become world beaters and for them not to be acquired or not to be tempted to go to the US to raise money. And when, you know, tier one VCs in the US uh, investing large checks into a UK or European business, they're understandably going to expect them to flip to be a US top code. You know, and we're seeing this in the quantum computing sector with companies having gone you know, to the US because they can't raise capital here. So that's a real structural issue of how we get, you know, more pension money and other things into later stage capital. I think in general, even at the early stage where uh, 7% operate, we still see quite a number of bad investors. And I don't mean so much these days as sort of bad actors as in they're trying to rip you off, but just um, well-meaning investors who don't really know what they're doing. Um, and by that, I mean, they're trying to back companies in a way which doesn't necessarily set them up for, for, for the best, best growth trajectory. And that's either because they're trying to take too much of the business or it's because they're giving them bad advice, you know, or it's because they're chasing revenue too early. And, and that's a particular, it can be a particular problem in the UK because EIS and SEIS has been a fantastic catalyst for the angel economy. But some of the EIS funds, because they are the, the nature of their stakeholders and because they're set up primarily as tax vehicles, that can dictate strange motivations later on. I mean, simple example, a company takes EIS money, but then six months later decides it's best to flip to, to be a US company. That can cause a problem because it can mean that the EIS compliance is lost. You know, it can mean that they don't want businesses to get acquired too soon or shut down too early because of the, the tax implications of that. So founders need to be very aware of who they're taking money from and what those the motivations of those people are to make sure that the the investors' expectations are aligned with the, the ambition level of the founder. Because you, you've got all different types of founder and you need all different types of investor. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, any ASV or VCT fund. It's just that some founders are going to be more appropriately funded by them than others. Yeah, absolutely. So last question, what, what's the one piece of technology you can't live without? I think life would be pretty painful without Google Maps. I mean, I could pick the obvious one, email, right? I guess everybody would pretty much, life would grind to a halt without email. Google Maps would be pretty painful. I definitely love Audible. I think Audible is the best uh, sleeping tablet there is. I put a book on 20 minutes each night before I go to sleep on a timer and I fall asleep brilliantly. Uh, didn't uh, Amazon announce yesterday they're rolling it into Prime so you get podcasts for free now, I think, with Prime. Fantastic. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a happy payer. The best bundle in the world. <laughs> 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 I hope you're on commission. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Well, that's uh, that's been really great, Andrew. Thank you so much. It's been great insight into what you look for in companies and how the VC process can be quite complicated, but there are these outcomes that need to be really carefully thought through. And there's a lot of lessons in there for the founders to take on board when considering taking VC money and then what the successful outcome can look like. So thank you so much. It's great to be here. A great episode with a very experienced investor and entrepreneur. Hope everyone learned a few things and kind of understood what VCs look out for. The next episode is with a founder, Hamish Grierson. It's the founder of Thriver Health, which is a proactive healthcare company. 
It's a really great episode, so look out for that one. See you again next time.